1: That's BetterHELP.com. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone, I'm Megyn Kelly. Welcome to The Megyn Kelly Show. Today, part two of our interview with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. If you did not catch part one, we tackled a lot of topics, including his stance on childhood vaccines. And his theory on why Dr. Anthony Fauci is so focused on everyone getting the COVID shot. And while that was a genuinely compelling exchange, part two is probably my favorite because Robert is an incredibly interesting person. We never see him profiled or interviewed really about his family and history because he's been deemed too controversial to talk to by our so called media betters. What a shame because he is fascinating. Today, we get personal about what it was like growing up Kennedy. Robert is the third of 11 children born to Robert F. Kennedy and his wife, Ethel. His father served as our nation's 64th attorney general and was the brother of our 35th president, John F. Kennedy, as well as the late U.S. Senator Ted Kennedy. Given the amount of star power in his orbit, Robert's childhood stories are sensational, like his memories of being with his uncle, President Kennedy, Um, In the Oval Office, while being the president is clearly a stressful job, Robert says JFK always made time for him. He once had an Oval Office meeting with him uh, to tell his uncle about his new pet, Salamander. Robert was only nine when President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963, and he remembers it. Just five years later, in 1968, his own father would be killed when Robert was just 14. In this interview, what he remembers most from those awful tragedies and his very strong opinion on who he thinks committed the murders, which you may find surprising. I did. Robert is now 68 years old, the father of six children and one stepchild. In 2014, he married actress Cheryl Hines, star of Curb Your Enthusiasm with Larry David. And that is where we pick up today's conversation the toll his controversies have taken on her and what it's like. be one of the most censored men in america what do you think about the censorship you've endured
2: oh that i mean to me megan that's the most disturbing feature of this you know this kind of bewildering um uh response to covid that we've seen i you know first of all i want to say this that i i'm accused of of promoting vaccine misinformation, but nobody, not Instagram, not the White House, not anybody else has actually identified a statement that I've made that is incorrect. Um, There were no statements on Instagram. I didn't even say that the, uh, the virus came from Wuhan. I just said it should be investigated because it would be weird if the guy who was financing those Experiments and may have created the virus is now running the pandemic response, and so these questions should be asked. I didn't say it would happen because I couldn't at that point. I have not made any inaccurate statements as far as I know. If I did make one and it was identified, I would immediately apologize and withdraw it. Um, Instagram and Facebook acknowledges and it uses the term vaccine misinformation as a euphemism for any statement or assertion that departs from government proclamations, whether they're factually true or not. So my crime was criticizing government policies. I'm not, it was not passing actual misinformation. And that's a problem for our government. You know, Adams and Madison and Jefferson said we put uh, freedom of speech in the first amendment because all of the other rights are dependent on that right and if a government can can silence criticism it has a license to commit any atrocity and that's why it's like you know when i was young i supported the aclu and others who were supporting the right of nazis To march in Skokie, Illinois, not because I, you know, I was, I was repulsed by their ideology and by their statements and horrified by them. But, you know, at the same time, we need to be able to, to be willing to die. To protect their right to say those things, and that's you know what they understood our ancestors in the, in the American Revolution, and that's what generations of writers, of of um, politicians, of respected leaders have warned against any government that tries to limit speech. And now it's very strange We're living in this world where um it's become you know it's become okay in my political party I saw. A Gallup poll recently, it was either Gallup or Rasmussen, that said that something like 70% of Democrats support um, government restricting the speech. And, uh, um, you know, it's almost inexplicable to to me that that we could be in that place right now. I I believe my political party was the party that would go to the mat to to, you know, to protect people's right to say what they want. And that's so critical for our democracy. And mm-hmm. you know, it also is critical to public health. Listen, I may be wrong about the things that I talk about, but, you know, why can't we debate them? Why yeah. can't we hear these Absolutely. discussions about masks, about masks? Okay, you know, I've sued agencies for 40 years are failing to go through a regulatory process to have an environmental impact statement where it explains where, which has to explain the scientific basis for new regulations or actions, show the studies and then do a cost benefit analysis. None of that happened. It was, you know, we just suspended democracy. We suspended due process. And once they got rid of freedom of speech, they went after all the other. They closed a million churches, all the churches in this country for a year with no public hearing, no discussion of the science, no offering of you know a, a single scientific study to justify it. They, they shut down a million businesses with no just compensation, no due process, no just compensation, a direct violation of our constitution. They got rid of Seventh Amendment jury trials against any company that says that they're involved in providing a countermeasure. If there's a vaccine company and you get injured, you have no rights to compensation, no matter how grievous your injury, no matter how reckless their conduct, no matter how negligent their conduct, you cannot sue that company. And then, you know, they got rid of the prohibitions against, um, warrantless searches and seizures with all this track and trace surveillance that we now have to give our private information and our private medical records to people to get into a bar, to get on an airplane or whatever. And, you know, there is no pandemic exception in the U.S. Constitution. And by the way, it's not because they didn't know about pandemics, because there was a smallpox epidemic during the revolution that paralyzed washington's army of new england for a couple of months and there was another malaria epidemic that happened to the army of virginia so they knew very well what epidemics could do and yet they did not say that this document is suspended these rights are suspended whenever there is an epidemic and they you know the disturbing part of this response was that it did not seem to be a public health response at all. It was a militarized and monetized response. We we did things the opposite of what you would do if you wanted to do stop a pandemic. And ask yourself, and I, you know, I would ask any of my fellow Democrats who are supporting Tony Fauci, what his record is the worst record of any record of any country in the world, arguably. We had 4.2% of the global population here in the United States. and I think we had something like 17 or 18% of the global COVID deaths. The, the, the death rate in America was in the top 10 in the world. So we had 2,800 people per million population die. The African nations had an average of about 200. Oh, Nigeria had 15 people per million population. These countries, which Tony Fauci and Bill Gates, at the beginning of the pandemic, said Africa's going to get wiped out. You need to get them all vaccines. Nigeria has a vaccination rate of 1.5 for one vaccine, 1.5%. Wow. And they had a COVID death rate that was about one fifteen hundredth. Of our COVID death, right? Wow! And the you know there's reasons, Megan, for there there's there's reasons for that, that are non-medical. One is that African countries have younger populations, and COVID was a a, um, a disease that killed elderly people. But that doesn't explain it anywhere near these huge disproportions. Um, one of the things that could explain it is that co- that Nigeria has the highest malaria burden in the world Uh oh 27 of malaria cases globally come from that country Oh, everybody in the country is on hydroxychloroquine Mm -hmm. it also has the highest burden of river blindness a large part of the population is on ivermectin is that what explains Mm -hmm. the you know this incredible record against covid well we don't know but shouldn't we be asking that question Mm -hmm. isn't that first thing Tony Fauci should be doing is saying, why is there this huge delta between COVID death rates and all these different countries? And the countries that did worse are the ones that focus on the vaccines. And,
1: And the fact it's not just Fauci, as you as you well know, big tech has been completely supportive of this shutdown. You can't Even just hearing you talk about hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin sends just a little piece of my spine up like, oh, Lord, this is, you know, YouTube, this is where they're going to jump in and try to censor us. Nothing should be censored here. This is a discussion about whether they work. Should we have discussions about more discussions about about that fact? Um, But that's that's what they've done to us, because they'll take away your platform, as you well know. You can't even talk about it. They've jumped in on the silencing of discussion, and they're the ones who control the public information highway. So it's really damaging. I, I'm i in news, and to this day, I don't know what the truth is on ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. And even talking about it makes even me feel like, mm, it's, it's insane. It's un-American
2: that's right and you know i i, I, would, I completely not, i can be wrong about anything let's have the debate let's have the discussion you know that, that our democracy is based on the free flow of information with good Notions and good ideas and good arguments triumphing in the marketplace of ideas, and none of that stuff is happening. And as you point out, you know, we need to ask ourselves qui bono? Who is benefiting from this? Clearly, the pharmaceutical companies, and also the big tech platforms are. And they, you know, there has been this has been a war against the poor. If you look at, you know, black uh, neighborhoods, Compton, Harlem had two or three times the death rates at Bel Air or Greenwich. And, you know, you had the the schools closed in those neighborhoods. According to the Brown University study, children lost 22 IQ points during young children during the pandemic. And, you know, and the mental illness went off the roof. I think 51 percent of black children had suicidal ideation you had the police go into those neighborhoods and close down the, um, you know, the basketball the public courts parks. Yep. and, and who benefited from all of this? It was the, they, you know, the internet platforms, it was Jeff Zuckerberg, uh, Bill Gates, um, uh, Sergey Brand, Larry Ellison, uh, Jeff Bezos, et cetera. These, there an there was a transfer of wealth, the biggest in history, arguably, $3.8 trillion from the global poor and from working people to this new class of oligarch billionaires. And the same people who were benefiting were the ones who now control our communications the Facebook and like, you know, all these platforms. Mm-hmm. And they were using their control to suppress and to censor any criticism Of the government lockdowns that were making them even richer. And there's something really wrong with that. And the government was allied with them and telling them what to censor and whatnot. We have correspondence between Zuckerberg and Tony Fauci telling him about censoring people like me. Oh, it's not, you know, and I again I there's nothing I'd like more than to debate Tony Fauci or any of these people.
1: Well, I'd buy a ticket to that. What I would buy a ticket to that <laughs> <laughs> listen i it's not just suppression that's what's scary. it's also demonization, ostracization it's smearing, right and we've seen in the fauci papers that have been uh, collected by places like the intercept that's his m o that they that's they intentionally smeared several scientists and so on who weren't following the fauci line they've definitely smeared you and some of the doctors that you just mentioned and tried to create this you know, they're freaks, they're, they're disinformationists, you know, that's, that's by design. They don't want people listening to you. And I, I, I wonder, I was thinking about it because, um, you know, the, the freedom rally that you went to, that was anti-mandate and i am anti-mandate too. I am pro vaccine for the, for the record. You probably gathered that. <laughs> so am I. So am I. <laughs> yeah, but I really am. Um, but I like the I liked the, I loved the anti-mandate rally and uh, those who organized it. And I thought it was great. So you got in trouble when you were there. You, I mean, I got your overall point. People get upset when you compare, compare anything to the Holocaust. Um, but you were basically saying, I don't know, I have it in front of me just so so I don't get it wrong. But it was. Um, Uh, Even in Hitler's Germany, you could cross the Alps into Switzerland. You could hide in the attic like Anne Frank did. Today, Today, the mechanisms are being put in place that will make it so none of us can run, none of us can hide. Well, all hell rained down on you. I mean, when the Auschwitz Memorial is responding to you on Twitter, you know you've stepped in it they came out and said it was it's a sad symptom of moral and intellectual decay so those people don't like you um and some of them don't like you for political reasons but what did you make of your wife cheryl heinz who by the way i did not realize you were married to the wonderful cheryl Hines of uh, curb your enthusiasm um she came out she gave it to you too she gave it to you right between the eyes and said um his we should not be compa- comparing the holocaust to anything or anyone his opinions are not a reflection of my own and uh his reference to anne frank was reprehensible and insensitive so I know you said you were sorry for that comment, but what did you make of it?
2: Yeah, well, let me, let me get to my wife in a minute and just make a couple of comments on that. Number one, I regret making that analogy. Uh, number two, I was not comparing COVID policies to the Holocaust. I never mentioned the Holocaust. Um, I was making a point, I I was comparing a number of totalitarian regimes, left wing and right wing. So in that same, I think earlier in that sense or later, I talked about uh, the communist regime of East Germany and that all of these totalitarian regimes have similar features and similar intentions, which is to control every aspect of human behavior. And my point is that none of them have been able to do that in history that, um, That today, however, because of these new uh, technologies, technologies like 5G, which allows mass um, uh, harvest of data and very, very intense surveillance satellites, 415,000 satellites, low altitude satellites that are going to be able to look at every square inch of the earth everyday facial recognition systems. We now have these AI systems that can look through walls and see people where they're hiding in buildings. We have vaccine passports, which is a a way of social control digital currencies. We saw what they did to the truckers in, in Mm. uh, Canada where they closed their bank accounts and, uh, you know, denied the money. There's all these new instrumentalities that make the, the rising the emergence of totality what i call turnkey totalitarianism where they're they're putting in place all of these instrumentalities now or they're they're they are getting put in place let me use the passive voice and it's going to give people who have those kind of an ambitions a level of control over every aspect of our lives and makes dissent and and resistance almost impossible that's the point i was going to make i made a big mistake by making any reference to uh, nazi germany because of the sensitivities and because i know that what i say is going to be distorted by yeah. people who want to silence me yeah. and that you know i need to understand that and i need to be careful in what i say because there are people who have sensitivities about that epic in history that are legitimate that are um you know, uh, that are horrific. Oh, so, and you know, I apologize because I don't want to hurt anybody. I have no, you know, desire to hurt anybody. I would say this, that I do think that we need to find ways to be able to talk about our history. Because if we can't talk about, you know, the, and the, the history of the rise the third like, did not begin with death camps death camps didn't come until nineteen forty one um, there was a whole system of totalitarian controls that were put in place, and there were alchemies of demagoguery that were used that are common to all totalitarian systems <sighs> over that twelve year period in which certain groups of people and particularly Jews and poles and gypsies or Roma people etc were Systematically dehumanized and robbed of their rights, and but it was a 12-year process. And we need to, at some, at some time, we need to figure out ways to be able to talk about that process without mm-hmm. offending people. That's what that's what Gina Carano
1: got fired from ABC for, from Disney for for, for trying very, to talk about that. It's a
2: Very tricky area, and I should have known better to stay the hell away from it because. It, it's just, there's no winning for me. People cannot hear my words. They're going to hear from their feelings yeah. and their hearts, and they're entitled to those feelings. Yes, but
1: you know words. when your spouse is on the side of the, the other people, you know you've done wrong, right? Because your spouse is rooting for you.
2: I, I want to say this. I, um, you know, I encourage Cheryl to publish that statement. In fact, I asked her to do a statement that was much tougher than that. Really? Which, yes, because, and I'm glad she didn't. I'm very glad she didn't. But um, I actually gave her language that was much, much tougher than that because she needed to distance herself from me. I, my job as her husband is to protect her. And mm-hmm. the, the arrows and the bullets that were being slung at me were hitting her. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, getting tremendous blowback. From her friends from her industry from others and it was uh it was a terrible experience for me and I, she you know by the way what she said she believed so she wasn't saying something you know she is uh she does not accept all of the things that you know, you know, I believe she, about the, about what's happening with the vaccines and the medical department. we don't have. Yeah, you don't speak it. for her. What? <laughs>
1: yeah, I got it. Yeah.
2: So I, I don't need to convert her, and I don't need her to, you know, to be. I I I don't want her to. She started reading my book. She read all my other books. And she started reading that book and she got on Fauci and she had just made her depressed to read that, you know, she has an idealism and, and a, um, and just a gentle heart. And to read, you know, about these injuries to children and to read the government officials that are charged with protecting our health or compromised and corrupted, it just, it, it was, um, it was it was making her soul wither. And I mm-hmm. said to her, You guy, you kid, you don't have to read that book and you should stop reading it. Because let me just tell you something about, about um Cheryl. She she is literally the best human being that I've ever met. And when I, you know, I met her through Larry David and Larry bought her, who was my friend. And Larry brought her in 2002 to go skiing at a ski event I did up in Banff in British Columbia. She was married then and I was married then. And then she came back in 2011 and both of us were separated. And I, you know, got a crush on her on that weekend. So Mm -hmm. I knew I wanted to date her. And I went, but I also knew that you know I went to basically to ask Larry's permission because Larry has a lot of rules that you know are not written down anywhere, but a lot of men understand them. And one of them was I know that even though it was his TV wife that knew that it was <laughs> I and I needed to, to get, you know, square with him before I Might have been I,
1: crossing I, a boundary. I got it.
2: Exactly. So I went and met him at the Carlisle Hotel around 11 o'clock at night. I went up to his room and sat down with him. I had, it was like asking her parents to date, although you know he's <laughs> my age. And, I, and he, I said, what do you think of that? And he said, he said, she is the best person, human being I've ever met. Yeah. And he said, she's the only person in this industry that is universally beloved. She doesn't have a single enemy. And she has a level of professionalism. She's never late for an appointment. She always knows her line. She does what she's supposed to do. And she really, you know, Cheryl came from total poverty. And she was born in North Florida. Her father lived in a trailer in Frostbrook, Florida. Cheryl uh, slept in the same bed with her mother until she left high school. She came out. She paid for her own way through college. She put her way through waitressing. And working as a, a joke teller on a telephone line, and then she came out here in a you know Toyota Tercel with a hundred thousand miles on it, and worked, worked for fifteen years as a as a bartender and as a personal assistant before she finally got a break. Which you know she was working at the ground Groundlings and doing um, improv, uh, but she didn't get a break in the industry until she got that job at Curb Enthusiasm where they were looking for somebody who was not not an actress. And, you know, then her career took off. She directs films and she has an incredible career that she put together single-handedly. And the idea that my activities
3: Mm.
2: would be jeopardizing this thing that this incredible person put together was just like I felt like my job is to protect her and I was doing the opposite of my job so wow. my heart was breaking and I was um you know I would have done it taken any blow to make sure that she could distance herself from, you know yes my grandpa you know my my parents were all really good friends with leading figures of the time who had been terrible enemies of my grandfather. And my grandfather used to always say, I don't want my enemies to be my children's enemies. They can pick their own fights, but they don't need to fight mine. And I don't want them to. And I feel that way about my family, too. I, you know, I chose this life. I chose this, you know, crusade. And they need to figure out their own way. My children and other members of my family have other things to do. They're all doing valuable stuff. And I'm not insisting that they read my book. If you this issue is so hard to learn, you know, I've been litigating it. I've written book after book about it.
1: Coming up, Robert talks about his uncle and his father's battles with the FBI and the CIA. And I also ask him if he still considers himself a Democrat after all the backlash he's taken from his side.
0: There are over 75 million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France. Which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than mère and mère somehow being different words. To be, it's more popular than being French. See you in there.
1: now trust me i i'm a lawyer and a journalist and it, it took me a lot just to come up yeah. with you know like where where am i going to challenge him and what you know what are some uh, sort of I mean, points,
2: megan i want to tell you uh, you know how impressed i am because you're very brave to have me on because you saw oh. what they did to joe rogan for having uh for having <laughs> dr malone on yeah and I'm the only worse person, Doctor Malone. So you know they try to destroy Joe Rogan, who's got forty million followers. I know. And Joe Rogan wouldn't put me on. Joe Rogan wanted to put me on. He won't put me on because, and he has good reason for it. Because wow. they will, you know, the the what you face if you allow me to talk is um, is and you've pushed back at me appropriately. You and I. You know, you've made good points on this show you've done, you know, you're tough and you're smart, but you also, you have a lot of courage to, you know, to even allow me to talk. I've never been allowed to talk like this on a, on a major platform, except, you know, Tucker Carlson.
1: Yep. Yep. A friend of mine too. And thank you for saying that. Um, I I was really looking forward to it. I have to say the more they try to suppress someone like you- or Dr. Malone, the, the more I want to do it. You know, that I've always been that person it, and I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled you're here. And I should tell the audience, of course, nothing was off limits. You, you're not that guy, but you were like, I'll stay as long as you want. We can go. We can talk about anything because you're not afraid of pushback. Unlike these censors who only want to air one-sided story. And I've said this before, you know, as a lawyer and I know as a lawyer of 10 years before I got into journalism, if you only if you go into a courtroom and you only present one side, you're going to win. It's very easy to win when you only have the one side talking. You can persuade even the least gullible of jurors to come over to your side. But that's what they're doing. They're just shutting down one side and then declaring it a victory. And they haven't won the hearts and minds. That's why there's so many skeptics still out there. And that's why your book is in its 12th printing, even though no one will give it any promo. It's not going to be reviewed by the Times and celebrated in the magazines and you know all over the newspapers. Uh, but the people have a, have a way.
2: The Times and the Washington Post did, just did a big profile piece on me. And neither of them even mentioned the name of the book. Oh, my gosh. That's how like, radioactive it is, how um, but, so wait, you know, let, let a- me
1: ask you this did did everything die down for Cheryl like everything was fine with her and her industry and show and all that after that
2: I think so and okay, um, okay. you know I hope so she was nervous about me doing this show I can tell you that uh-huh.
1: <laughs> she's going to like so it I, when after she I, listens I, to it she's going to approve I,
2: I'll just tell you another thing because I brought her so much heartache on that other thing that I, I want to say this about her that you know you mentioned my my wife that I've been through a real tragedy with yeah. um, in my former marriage, and um, we you know I have uh, six kids and then a stepchild with the Cheryl. but they um, you know that was a, obviously anybody who listens to this can imagine how tough that was for them. And Cheryl coming into my life and becoming a friend my kids, adore her. And she has these extraordinary values. Um, She has just a natural uh, gift for understanding what you should do in any situation. She has more wisdom than I know of in any person. But the the word wisdom means a knowledge of God's will. And she has this acute sense of what's right and wrong in every situation. And she shared that with my children and just been a loving, loving friend to all of them. And, you know, my kids are all in credit, are flourishing now and they're healthy and they're, they're all doing well in careers and school and athletics, et cetera. And a lot of that is because of the strength and the stability that she brought to my life. So. Now that I wanted to explain that because um, that, you know, is why I would do anything to spare her that kind of pain.
1: Well, I mean, we'll have to rain down hell on anybody who tries to mess with her for her husband's opinions. You're well-researched. You're a lawyer. You've devoted your life to this. Of course, you have strong opinions. You know, I was thinking about it, though, because. You talk about I'm brave for having you on. You're brave for staying on this after so much public shaming, you know, on, on all the fronts that we've discussed. And it, to me, in studying up on you and your family before the interview, I guess I, I thought to myself, I shouldn't be surprised because one thing I knew even going into it, but then was confirmed by everything I've read you say about your family, is you're risk takers and not by accident. I mean, it's probably in your DNA as well, but it was encouraged, right? From an early age, you, you write about how your dad may be too much. So, you know, you'd get threats to the family. And of course, given the way he died, of course, we all look at it differently now. But even prior to that, there'd be death threats, there'd be something. And, you know, he was like, we're fine. You know, we don't need security and we're going to take risks and we're Kennedys. And even the day, was it, um, you tell me, I'm trying to remember the story, but it was, there was a death threat and, or maybe it was when JFK was, Was shot, but he didn't want you to leave school because he wanted you to be a good little soldier, and not panic the other children. During the
2: Cuban Missile Crisis.
1: Oh, Cuban Missile Crisis. Okay. Yes.
2: Marshals came to our house. My brother Joe and I were. You know, I think there were probably other kids and all people may know that there's eleven kids in my family. But joe and i were kind of the older boys and we were home and the u.s marshals came by and they wanted to take our whole family down to these um to this you know underground city that they have down in the blue ridge mountains where they they have literally they hollowed out the blue ridge and they have they have a whole city there for the government to hide in when the you know when the bombs were raining down during nuclear winter and that you know the um and so we were very very excited you know we just we wanted to see the joint and uh and to go there and um but my father called us and he got us the two of us on the phone on different lines and he said if you children leave people are going to recognize that in washington and it's going to cause people to panic and you need to go you need to go to school You need to show, you need to show that, you know, everything is calm and be good soldiers. And, um, So I mean I and he also said that if there is a nuclear war, it will be better to be dead than to be alive. Now I did not go along with that. I Mm. felt like I would thrive in that situation, and I I really (laughs) wanted to see the place. But we did what he asked us to do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know the story. This is from your book, American Values. Another thing that 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 the audience should buy. But one of my favorite stories from that book is your. Of course, your father was Attorney General under President Jack Kennedy, and. You write about how, when you were little, there was a red button on his desk that would go directly to the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, who is just a crazed guy. I mean, the stories about him in your book are great, too. And um, you had some fun when you were a little one with that red button. It was enjoyable for you. you. Do you remember this story from your book?
2: My father had a unique relationship with Hoover. Hoover hated my father. And after my uncle died, he never spoke to him again. And he reported directly to Johnson, even though my father continued as attorney general. My father was a ostensible boss, um, but ne- he Not had moving. never reported to an attorney general in history. He had always had direct access to the president of the United States. And he hated that my father made him go through him. Not only that, my father put a red button. The, the FBI was in an adjoining building. They were actually linked by a bridge. And they were linked by a tunnel, which we used to go through. We would go to the shooting range, the FBI shooting range, and sometimes we go to Hoover's office. He caught me in his office one day trying to uh, catch the goldfish in his uh, in his fish tank. He was very angry. But
1: you're lucky; you still have uh, your hand. <laughs>
2: yeah, my father had a button on the desk that he could summon Hoover. And one day we were in there, and we were. Me and my two of my siblings were mischievously pressing that button, and he came up uh, very angry, which he should have been <laughs>
1: <laughs> It's amazing to think of you doing that. The other maybe not- re- unrelated story was um of the red phone that President Kennedy had installed so he could reach the the you know Soviets immediately. Um, And he had one, of course, in the Oval Office, but he had another one at your house where you were raised in just outside of D.C. in Virginia, which was sort of like a satellite White House for him. And this is crazy. Apparently, it's still there. Like your brother owns the house. Like we could go see it.
2: There was one in the Cape, which isn't my brother's now my brother's house, which for one year was the summer White House. And the wires are still going to the through the door. But what happened was- Could you
1: call father, now? Could you pick that up and just I don't have a direct conversation?
2: <laughs> if, 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 I don't even know if they use landlines in the Kremlin anymore. I have no idea how it works, but nobody's it's tried it for years. Very useful. Uh, but um, my, my uncle had this very interesting relationship, which people don't, don't know about, with Khrushchev, because my uncle didn't trust his CIA. He, in fact, after the Bay of Pigs invasion, which was you know, early in his presidency, two months into his presidency, he realized the CIA had lied to him, that they wanted to precipitate a nuclear war and that they um, had lied to him about the prospects and they knew that the invasion was going to fail. And they believed that he would be forced into sending in the asses, the aircraft carrier and, you know, and bombing Castro. And doing a US invasion. My uncle was absolutely against doing that. And when he when he came out of the ex of the meeting the next morning, he said to his aides, I want to take the CIA and shatter them into a million pieces and scatter them to the wind. He had this very hostile relationship with the agency, and my book, American Values, is about this. The hostile relationship between the Kennedys and the CIA actually began 10 years before when my aunt my grandfather picked a fight with Dallas. By, by, he was on a commission that recommended the, uh, the abolition of the clandestine services because they were causing trouble and blowback all over the world. My book is about the sixty-year battle between my family and the CIA. And well, my uncle had this very awesome relationship with his joint chiefs and with the CIA. He had been a soldier himself. He didn't trust the Army first starters, the Army brass. And he, you know, he was mistrustful of them. And he believed they wanted to make him go to war. And he said the primary job of every Every president of the United States, the number one job is to keep the nation out of war. That's what he said. What kind of a peace do I mean and what kind of a peace do we seek? Not a Pax Americana enforced on the world by American weapons of war. Not the peace of the grave or the security of the slave. I am talking about genuine peace, the kind of peace that makes life on Earth worth living they have the kind that enables men and nations to grow and to hope and build a better life for their children not merely peace for Americans but peace for all men and women not merely peace in our time but peace in all time and he wanted on his gravestone he wanted he when he was asked what would be the epithet he said he kept the peace that, that should be what was putting on his glasses right? So He he found, he began writing Khrushchev directly after the the summit in Vienna failed, and they exchanged these twenty six handwritten letters back and forth from each other that are incredibly intimate and caring, and um, you know show this extreme. Both of the leaders were surrounded by war hawks who considered nuclear war not just inevitable, but also advisable, preferable. And both of them were struggling against their own military industrial complexes to keep their nations out of war. And they developed this very close relationship with each other where they talked in these intimate details about their families, their children, about us in these letters. And they were smuggled between them by a KGB spy, whose name was Georgie Bolshakoy, who developed a very strong relationship with my father, a friendship with my father and mother. And we loved him as a kid. We knew he was a spy. He he was this compact little, uh, but very strong Russian who could do the Cossack dancing, and he could climb the ropes in our backyard. And one of the three times that my father got mad at at my mom in her life was when she made him do a push-up contest against Georgie Polshakoy. He he smuggled these letters in the New York Times, folded in between the two men. And at the same time, and that prompted my uncle to put in a direct line to to Grusha so that he could and run his State Department and run the spies and run the Pentagon and the two men could talk directly. And those mm-hmm. phones were in three places in McLean where I lived, in Fort, um, at the Summer White House where we all play and in the White House. And, uh, you know, it was extraordinary, it's, it would be like Biden having a direct line to Putin and being Mm. able to talk with each other rather than talk through these, you know, official apparatus, which oftentimes has agendas that are contrary to the best interests of our country. I mean, I only
1: wish we felt that was the case with Putin now. Right. It seems like it's him and not his complex, given the amount of his power over there. Um, But, yeah, you're you're. Uncle. I love how you just call him your uncle, the, the president of the United States, John F. Kennedy. Um, he came by those positions, honestly, because I read in your book, you write that you, your grandpa, his dad, Joe Kennedy, uh, that his pre-war sentiment, this before World War II, was that um, America should avoid foreign entanglements. Uh, and you write, but World War II had thrust leadership upon us. Um, but you say Jack Kennedy was determined ultimately that our role as an exemplary nation should be just that leadership. By example, we should perfect our union and model democracy for the nations of the world, not force it upon them. Boy, oh boy, I've been wondering when I read these words, what do you think your uncle would make of what's happening right now with Ukraine and what we should do about it?
2: Well, um, I don't ever speak for my uncle you know, in terms of what he would do on specific policies. I, and I think that, you know, other members of my family in respect to all of us I'll also avoid doing that. Um, but, you know, what I, listen, Megan, what I think is that we went to the war in Iraq in, um in 2002, 2003, and it turned out to be, and there was this hysteria that Saddam Hussein was a monster. We had to get him, et cetera. But there was no real explanation about what the u s. interest in it was. And um he had nothing to do with nine eleven, although we were made to think he did.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: He had nothing to do with the anthrax attacks, although we were made to think he did. And Um, There was no, there was a uniformity, kind of a propaganda wall that infected all the news organizations, what we used to call the yellow press. And I think it's really important when we have national policies like this, uh, that we look at the nuance and that we allow other voices on the, um, on, uh, on TV and on the radio and on, in our newspapers. And The Ukraine is an extremely complex geopolitically and historically, and in ways that Americans today are missing completely. And the people that we are pretending that we are now saying we need to help um, are, you know, we know about these very extremist views that are in the Azov battalion, et cetera that uh, we need to understand. And I just think that we should not rush into something without debate, uh, without a real debate, without blocking out alternative voices and about really understanding what the U.S. objectives are and what's best for the world.
1: Yeah. Coming up, Kennedy on how he tries to raise strong-minded, tough, resilient kids. Pure Talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because Pure Talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right. As you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. Pure Talk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network, but now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone, PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple. Or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to PureTalk. Just go to puretalk.com slash kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, visit puretalk.com slash kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad. Well, and and people should listen to you because you've been advising important people like presidents for a long time. We pulled a picture of you sitting next to President Kennedy on the airplane. And um, (laughs) you tell me what this little boy in these cute little gray shorts is telling the president of the United States. What's going on?
2: That picture on the airplane is coming back from the convention in uh, Los Angeles in 1960. And, you know, he had just been named the Democratic candidate. He wasn't
1: yet president.
2: That. He was not yet president. He was still the United States senator. And if you read,
1: is there an inscription on the bottom of it? There, There is. I'm trying to uh, read it he here. Sat,
2: to, say, to me, saying a president gets his advice from, you know, many. From many
1: uh, sources.
2: Or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so great. You were adorable, by the way. Do you remember... Like, were you, do you remember when he won the presidency? Because you're you're young, but you're, yeah, you remember that moment? of
2: Of course, that was, you know, I mean, we all worked in the campaign. I was out in Los Angeles for the convention. My parents were really good about Um, involving us and everything. And, you know, we had sit-down dinners every night with all the kids, and we talked about politics. They talked about current events. We had, from when we were really little, we had to read the papers every day, write down three current events every day in our journal. I like that. And we had to then give uh, talks on the weekends at dinner. Each one of us did a short talk on political or did did a poem or something. All 11 of you? Well, you know, my, the family grew slowly. They, they didn't have 11 kids all at once. So, <laughs> it's You're you know, like,
1: come on, keep it quick.
2: Were, there were seven of us and some of them were young, but the older kids were expected to, you know, do these things. And the younger ones gradually didn't, you know, the thing about my mother and I had, I talk about this kind of very, tense relationship that I particularly had with my mother for the first couple decades of my life, but she was, and then afterwards I was able to see, you know, what an incredible human being she'd been and how, particularly when I had my own kids, you know, and try to make them sit down at the table every night and say Mm -hmm. their prayers. And, have you know high level conversations and arrive on time and have their you know their hands clean and all that stuff and she did that every night with all of us and we did it and then we we all said the rosary every night we read the bible every single night we went to church every day in the summer and on sundays in the winter as well and um You know, if I try to do that to my kids, then they (laughs) ridicule me. (laughs) And So I really have tremendous respect for many, many gifts that she gave me. But, you know, one of those was just a very rich experience of of growing up in a household that had that kind of, you know, that kind of laughter and fun, but also the discipline.
1: Of, Of course, everyone was a Democrat. Now we know that. You know the things that we've been discussing that have been so disturbing over the past couple of years have been perpetrated on us almost universally by Democrats, and you noted it yourself. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you: Are you still a Democrat?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm still a Democrat because I think of the Democratic Party is a party that believes in free speech, that you know believes in the highest ideals of our country. Um, but I, um. And that is, said, that is, you know, a party that is much more reluctant to go to war that opposes the corporate domination of our country and that opposes environmental pollution. And those are, you know, issues that both parties, people of both parties, can share. I, I want to say this, Megan, that I think um, it is, you know, one of the intentions of people who are pushing totalitarianism is to encourage tribalism
3: Mm.
2: you know and division and if you look at you know the strategies for shattering indigenous societies that the intelligence agencies have uh, developed over many years one of the key strategies is to divide people divide them by race by political party by, by you know by religion whatever and so you know what i really try to do is is i try to be a bridge to try to find the common values that we have if we have we have a level of polarization now in this country that is dangerous if you re if you see that uh, that documentary social dilemma
1: yeah it's very
2: frightening because we are being manipulated to away from each other, to close the door on each other, to burn the bridges and to create two Americas. It's the most dangerous polarization that we've had since the United States Civil War. And one of the frightening things in that show is that, I mean, what they show in that show is that these, you know, Facebook and the other companies have developed algorithms that are designed to keep your eyeballs on that site for as long as possible. And they're out of control of those algorithms. They set them in motion and then they do things and learn things that nobody really knows how they're working. But it turns out that the way that you keep people's eyeballs on the site is by reinforcing their worldview by telling them things that they already believe in. So if I live in this house and there's a Republican next door and we make an identical inquiry on Google or whatever, we get two different answers. My answer will reinforce my worldview. His answer is going to reinforce his. And the the division, the abyss between us gets deeper and deeper. And we, this is a real problem for society and we have to figure out ways to build bridges with each other. So I don't talk so much about my political party anymore. I believe in all the values I've ever believed in. I'm fighting for all the values and for the vision of our country that I always believe in, but I am happy to talk to Republicans, work with them to, to battle in the, in the, foxholes in the trenches side by mm-hmm. side with them. Um I and and Democrats and everybody. And I don't ever ask anybody their political party. So I think and I used to, you know, so I'm not saying that it's not part of my you know, of, of what, but I think right now, purposefully, I really, um, I think it's so critical that we start talking to people that we disagree with yeah. and put aside all these tribal divisions, which are destroying this country.
1: I love what you said. I agree. It, I agree with it wholeheartedly and am trying to live it professionally and personally and am and am, am living it. Um, but it, forgive me for the follow-up, but, do you think you could vote for a Republican presidential candidate in 2024, or do you plan yeah, on voting I, for know, Joe Biden? My father,
2: listen, my father always said, vote for the person and not the party. So I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to talk about who I vote for or what I vote for, but I'm not going to, you know, I, I, I really think it's critical that we, um, we become less partisan and that we find common ground, that we build bridges to each other
1: coming up Robert, on why he believes his father's shooter and the man convicted of his father's murder, Sirhan Sirhan, should be free. Pure Talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because Pure Talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right, as you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. PureTalk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network, but now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone, PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple, or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to Pure Talk. Just go to PureTalk.com/kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional fifty percent off your first month. Again, visit PureTalk.com/kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad.
0: There are over seventy-five million monthly Tubi viewers. That's more people than there are in France, which means Tubi is more popular than cigarettes for breakfast. It's more popular than considering iced coffee a total abomination. More popular than loving political revolutions. More popular than maire and mère somehow being different words. To be, it's more popular than being French. See you in there.
1: When you talk about division and how bad it is now, of course, I've got to ask you, as a man who lost his dad to an assassination in the tumultuous 60s. Martin Luther King was killed same year. President Kennedy also assassinated same decade. People often look back at the 60s and say, you don't know what division is like what we're suffering right now as a country is nothing like what we went through back then. And I realize you were just a boy. But how do you compare those two eras in terms of the country's division?
2: Let me you know, tell you just a a way of answering that question, an anecdote from my own life, which was one of the most a poignant um, experience that I had with my father and it took place and I had many, many, you know, wonderful experiences as I detail in that book. Uh, But this took place in the days after he died and he was of course killed in here in Los Angeles. And we, you know, I was here holding his hand when he died. Mm. We flew him back to, um, to New York where he was Senator. And we waked them at St. Patrick's Cathedral to a huge crowd of people. And it was multicolored people, you know, every color, packing the sidewalks eight to 10 deep for the, you know, the entire Upper Man. And we put them on a train and we took that train down from Penn Station to Union Station in Washington, DC. There were two million people lining the train tracks. The train trip that's usually two and a half hours took seven hours because the trains could not move because there were so many people on the tracks. They were a cross-section of the American public. There were Black people, whites. The the train stations in Newark, in Philadelphia, in in Baltimore were just jammed with with Black Americans singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic and holding candles as we came through. My father's casket was in the caboose. And, you know, I was riding at the end of the train or at some time in the different cars and there were every religion, there were rabbis, there were priests, there were nuns, there were men in military uniform, there were hippies and tie-dye t-shirts, there were Boy Scouts. I remember a group of about seven or eight nuns standing in the middle of a baseball field in, in Delaware um, in in the back of a pick a yellow pickup truck, and there was just this incredible array. It was a cross section of the American experience. It was all the crowds that I had seen in all these political campaigns with my dad and my uncle since I was a little boy, and it was a complete mixture of the American, you know, diaspora. And four years later, most of the crowd was white because our population was. And they were holding signs, American flags, uh, pray for us, Bobby, goodbye, Bobby. You know, they were holding the babies up. Went and we got to Penn Station and Washington, or Union Station in Washington, President Johnson met us. We took my father up the hill, to Arlington, we passed the mall. And at that time, the Poor People's Campaign, which had been organized, conceived by my father, organized by Martin Luther King and Marion Wright Edelman, and with thousands of poor men from all over the country. They're trying to create a political movement for poor people, living in tents and shanties, and they all came to the sidewalk, they bowed their head and they held their hats against their chests as we went up the hill to Arlington to bury my father next to his brother. And um and four years later, I was in college and I was looking at demographic data from the 1972 campaigns. So that was 1968. My dad was killed in the middle of that campaign. Four years later, the vast majority of those white voters between Baltimore and or between Wilmington and Washington, who had supported my father strongly. Four years later, the vast majority of them were voting not for George McGovern, who was aligned with my father on, on most issues, but for George Wallace, who was diametrically opposed. He was a racist, segregationist, um, you know, of the worst kind. And um, and it occurred to me then, so the same people that voted for my father were now voting for a guy who believed absolutely the opposite. Mm-hmm. It occurred to me that and it struck me many times since that every nation, like every human being, has a darker side and a lighter side. And that the easiest thing for a politician to do is to appeal to our bigotry, to our hatred, to our selfishness, to misogyny, to xenophobia, um, and to our greed and anger. And that. It's much more difficult to do what my father was trying to do, which is to try to make us feel like part of a community. And we are all on a heroic mission to perfect the republic, to make this nation an exemplary nation, to make this nation a model for all the other nations, what human beings can accomplish from all the races and colors and creeds that are gathered here. When we work together to elevate what's best about us, and to, a, to create something that is a model democracy for the rest of the world. And my father was able to get people to see the hero inside of themselves. All. He believed that each one of us had a hero inside of us. And that his job was to bring that hero out and get us to, to, to transcend narrow self-interest and to act on behalf of community and to, to resist the seduction of the notion that we can advance ourselves as a people by leaving our poor brothers and sisters behind. That We had to go forward together. We had to lift up each other and all be part of this American experience. What I think is quite clear is, is that we can work together in the last analysis and that
1: what has been
3: going
2: on within the United States over the period of the last three years, the divisions, the violence, the disenchantment with our society, the divisions, whether it's between blacks and whites, between the poor and the more affluent, or between age groups or in the war in Vietnam, that we can start to work together. We are a great country and a selfish country and a compassionate country. And I intend to make that my basis for running and over the period of next year. And, you know, so that's the answer, I think, to your question that. Uh, you know, we need to start appealing to the best side of all Americans and, that, and stop looking at their race, their religion, their political party or affiliation or anything else and just say, what do we need to do to make this country, you know, the best, the exemplary nation that it ought to be.
1: Mm, that was so moving hearing you talk about him. It takes me back to I was born long enough ago that News about the Kennedys and the way they saw the world and presidential speeches and speeches by Bobby Kennedy were still in the news and they played them often. And they were still, you know, your dad, your uncle, still symbols of the Democratic Party and what it meant to be a Democrat. It's changed so much now, as has the Republican Party. But as you were talking, my producers put on the screen a black and white picture of your dad, of Jack Kennedy, and of your uncle Ted Kennedy together. These when they were younger, they were strong, robust. Good looking guys, you know, brothers standing together, getting into politics, trying to help the country advance. And it reminded me of the way you wrote about growing up, just all the cousins. Was it like 29? there. I think you just said 70, but it's like 29 cousins or something like that running around.
2: Yeah, well, I, I had another, you know, my mother had a huge family too. So there were oh, 20 so,
1: Yeah. Okay. Yes. But like <laughs> growing up, Kennedy you know, they they referred to Jackie and and Jack as Camelot, but you guys had some of that too. And like, I just wonder, they didn't let you play inside if the sun was shining. You had to be outside and you had to be playing games and you had to be with each other. And it was sort of, this seemed like a communal living in a way. Um, That too seems to be withering, right? Like our connectedness to one another, be it family, friends, in part, thanks to technology. Can you Take me back just for a minute so I can feel that, too, of what it was like to be connected and be outdoors and not be glued to a phone and be taking risks and being going on boats and be playing bi- football, all of it.
2: Yeah, well, you that, that was a pretty good description on the boat. we were <laughs> raised communally with all my other cousins. In fact, you know, we all live in the same town, the Seaside Village, Hyannisport, which is a magical, magical place and still is. My kids go up there every summer, and they have uh, over 100 cousins who are their age and who they adore. At that point, we would uh, migrate from one family house because it was, my grandparents had nine children. One of them, Joe, died during the war, kicked died in an air crash after the war. Rosemary was intellectually disabled all the remaining kids the remaining six kids all had houses essentially next to each other or very close to each other in Iannisport, and most of them had large families and we would migrate every night we would eat in a different house. So, you know, on Thursdays, we'd eat at Shriver's house. On, uh, on Tuesdays, we'd eat at Smith's. On Wednesdays, we'd eat at John Kennedy's house. On Saturdays, we'd eat at Ted Kennedy's. And on Sundays, wow. we'd eat at, you know, my, our house for Robert Kennedy. And there was lots of competition between the family. Um, you know, there was uh, people were engaged in every kind of competition. We had a, my grandfather had hired an Olympic, uh, uh swimming coach who was, who was an Olympian named Sandy and He he taught us all sports. You know, he taught us boxing and, um, and, uh, 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 swimming. And we had sailing and tennis lessons and all that kind of stuff. And we were always competing. Oh, you know, but it was a healthy kind of competition, I think, and it was outside. And I think we we weren't allowed inside during the daytime, even if there was a rain or something. We were told you can't come in. You got it. And there was no TV and you got to figure out a way to, you know, do something outside. So and it wasn't we weren't tempted to go inside. Everybody wanted to be outside. I really am frightened for my kids generally and I raised my kids as much as I could outdoors so that I think they you know they love that and you know I have a kid uh that just returned from two weeks whitewater kayaking in uh Patagonia and he's on his way up to run the it- I ride, and all my kids wow. love the outdoors but uh but the um the, I really am frightened and concerned about this generation because I think they're, you know, the technology, the cell phones, the TikTok, the Instagram, um, and the, the, the kind of self loathing that accompanies um, a lot of those addictions is, uh, if, if they have to overcome stuff that we never had to overcome, Mm-hmm. In the, the life that, um, you know, I think the, the socialization of these children today, it's an, it's an addiction. You know, these devices are designed to addict people and they're addicting themselves to something that is not apparently healthy for any reason. Yeah. And it concerns me a lot, but I don't know what to do with it. I do, you know, Megan, I think, the, the Democrats have a really, um, who are advocating censorship. The concern they have, the underlying concern, is a legitimate concern. You have uh, because of the power of the social media, um, these you know inflammatory and violent and dishonest characterizations kind of uh, have an, a way of amplifying on the internet. The way they wouldn't do with conventional newspapers or news sources mm-hmm. and, and the the algorithms that they use to keep us on the site also have the um the side effect of of or the fallout of of polarizing opinion and making opinion um i think more extreme yeah and and raising passions in a way and i think as a society we have to figure out how to deal with that we have to figure out some fix but i do not believe that the fix is censorship
1: i agree uh, you That's can right. censor
2: certain things you can censor pedophilia you can censor um incitements to violence But when you get outside of, of those and a couple of other narrow categories that you know, censorship is not legitimate for any
1: reason. Really, it's it's really offensive if you think about the fact that these same companies who are silencing your view, right? They deem your view disinformation or too controversial for YouTube, what, whatever it is. Those are the same companies that spend their days making money off of manipulating us and making us hate one another. It's almost like they, they claim the moral high ground, you know, with absolutely no solid footing on which to stand.
2: Yeah. And, you know, they're making money and they're tied in with the intelligence agencies and they're tied in with big pharma. You know, Google owns three vaccine companies. Facebook, Zuckerberg is, has a billion dollar investment in vaccines. So they're, you know, and they are all making money on They have partnerships with the big pharmaceutical companies. They're inseparable. And it's a really dangerous conglomerate because the, you know, we, there's no, it's not paranoid to say the intelligence agencies are deeply, deeply embedded in these companies.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And you have the, you know, you have military applications, you have huge government contracts, you have deals with the pharmaceutical companies, and you've created this, this government mm-hmm. corporate cartel that controls all of our communications and so and it's really really dangerous it
1: really makes you want to disconnect and, and just go live in the woods just go play outside like a kennedy and don't don't look at any devices just to round back to you guys outside and playing and all that um have to ask you you write in the book uh we built tree houses in the magnolia we played for hours in the hayloft making forts from hay bales we invented our own games mostly involving some element of risk like tag on the roof where we leapt from atop the barn to the tack room, tool sheds and horse trailers roofs or onto a neighboring white pine. It reminds me of a quote that I read from your grandmother, the the matriarch of the Kennedy clan Rose, where you know you never know whether these are real or not, but that what was attributed to her was um better a broken bone than a broken spirit. And I love that. It seems to in- in capture her overall attitude, if not her actual words. But can I ask you about that? Because um, it's, it's, it's not without its downsides, right? And, and I'm thinking in particular of JFK Jr. More with Robert F. Kennedy Jr. next. Pure Talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because Pure Talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right. As you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. Pure Talk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network, but now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple, or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to PureTalk. Just go to puretalk.com Kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, visit puretalk.com Kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad. You know, a lot of us treasured him and Caroline Bessette and his wife and you know, just thought, Oh my God, what, why, right? Like, why do you have to do it? Why did you have to fly the plane? Why do you have to go up in the bad weather? And, but a lot of people talked about that. Like, is it a, is it a blessing or a curse to be a Kennedy to have this penchant for risk and this outdoorsman attitude? And, you know, some, a lot of people felt better about leading a more sedentary life with fewer risks in it. How, how do you make sense of it all? Having suffered such loss?
2: people shouldn't listen to me as a parent the, the older i get the less i know about parenting so <laughs> i'm I, I am not going to give people advice on parenting i mean i can share kind of my experience strength and hope which is that um you know i my my approach to parenting has been um has been to, to to a really, laissez-faire, fair to try to be a good example, to try to encourage interest, my kids' interest in history and um, and you know to and values and but also to understand that as much as I love them, that God loves them more, and that He's uh, they're His children, and that you know my um, role is not to control them but to encourage them and. Um, You know, most of my kids went through periods of revolt against me, which I welcome. I think children, you know, need to divorce their parents. They need to develop their own sense of self. They need to develop confidence and they need to be, you know, I like when my kids argue with me. I have a couple of kids. I have one kid in particular who does not, he's not completely bought into any of my vaccine, you know, baloney or whatever. So he, and he argues with me all the time. And I love that. I love that, you know, they can make up their own minds that it's really important that we develop in our country, a generation of children who understand the importance of critical thinking and who understand that fear can disable our capacity for critical thinking. And we have to resist that. You know, like, Franklin Roosevelt said that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, because fear destroys the capacity for critical thinking. And mm. we need to be armored against propaganda. We need to be armored against the orchestrated fear, because if we and so it's it's important to have brave children is important to instill courage and risk taking, if we want to continue to have a democracy, there was a generation of Americans in seventeen eighty nine or seventeen seventy six who um you know understood that there's there's uh there's a lot worse things than death. there's a lot worse things than dying, and living as a slave is one of them and that's why they gave their lives, they gave their fortunes they in some cases lost their families in order to give us the Bill of Rights of the United States Constitution. And, you know, we have lived off their courage for a couple of hundred years. And now it's time that we have to, you know, renew that commitment to courage again. And
1: Yes. Yes, there's a new a kind of risk taking,
2: right? But, you know, today,
1: today's day and age requires a new kind of risk taking. You know, you may not be getting in the cockpit of an airplane, but just to speak your opinion in today's day and age requires some measure of courage.
2: Yeah, I think so. I mean, my father always, you know, my father really admired, as I say in my book, physical courage. And he was surrounded by people like Jim Whitaker, his best friends, Jim Whitaker, who was the first American on Mount Everest, um, John Glenn, who was you know, the first American to orbit the Earth. Foot, maybe, you know, Sam, all these football players, Rosie Greer, Rafer Johnson, people who had demonstrated, right? And a lot of war heroes, like Gerald Tremblay and many others. They were all in our house all the time. And my father had this tremendous admiration for physical courage. But he always said that moral courage is an even rarer commodity. Mm. That, you know, and ultimately... That was, you know, the reason that my uncle wrote that book, Profiles and Courage, that won the Nobel or the Pulitzer Prize, was to illustrate, you know, a dozen stories of American politicians who had sacrificed their careers and in some cases their lives or principle to stand on a principle that they knew was going to cost them. And, you know, I was raised in a milieu where we were taught that it was a great privilege to be able to be part of some great controversy and that the best thing that could happen to us is if we could give our lives and our energies to something that, you know, was larger than ourselves.
1: Wow. Not just courage, but forgiveness was another value. I know it was instilled in you because you're Catholic. Um, And that brings me to Sirhan Sirhan. The man who killed your dad um, on June 5th, 1968, uh, outside the Ambassador Hotel, Los Angeles, California. He was sentenced to life in prison. And you and my old pal and colleague from Fox News, Douglas Kennedy, your little brother, um, were the two in your family, the two of your dad's kids, who were, as I understand it, in favor of him getting parole. He was paroled and you supported it, but then. Your other siblings were on the other side of it, and the governor, Newsom, he quashed it, so he's staying in prison. What, what convinced you to support the parole of the man who killed your dad?
2: Well, number one, even if Sir Ann had killed my father, I would be advocating his parole, and my brother, Douglas, is agnostic about whether Sirhan killed my father or not, but he even, he believes like I do that even if he did kill my father, he should be paroled. And, you know, to me, that is an important personal stand because I think resentments and anger and revenge are, uh, are impulses that are never, um, They're never good for you. I mean, uh, resentments are like, as they say, like swallowing poison and hoping someone else die.
3: Mm. It
2: it has a corrosive impact on your own soul. So I think, you know, what you what the, the better approach to um, to people who hurt you is to pray for them, to forgive them, and then to keep moving. But if you, you know, let them live in your head rent-free, then they are in control of you. And only by forgiving them do you escape their control and their influence. So I would be advocating, even if Sirhan did kill my father, Sirhan Sir did not kill my father. He certainly shot at my father. Um. My father, and this is what Thomas Noguchi, who was the coroner, you know, said from the beginning. Sir Ann, Sir Ann was standing in front of my father. He was standing in front of a steam table. He never got more than less than five feet from my father. There were 77 eyewitnesses in that ambassador hotel kitchen. And they all saw what happened, which is Sir Ann fired two shots at my father directly. One of those shots went past my father and hit Paul Schreit, who was a United Auto Workers, a very close friend of my father. He's the man who introduced my father to Cesar Chavez, Chavez, and one of his closest friends. And he today is alive and has been advocating for Sir Ann for 20 years. And he's the one who made me look at the evidence and read the autopsy report against my will. And showed me that Sirhan could not have killed my father. The second shot that Sirhan fired at my father ended up in a door, a door jam, a wooden door jam behind my father and was later removed by the Los Angeles Police Department. Sirhan was then tackled by six men, including Rosie Guerrier, Rafer Johnson, and a number of others, and his gun hand was pushed away from my father. And but they couldn't, he had a superhuman strength and they could not get the gun out of his hand. And he fired off six more shots and emptied the chamber. And all of those shots hit people. Oh, so we have them all accounted for. Oh, we know what happened to all of Sir Ann's shots, and none of them hit my father. My father was hit by four shots, one that passed harmlessly through his shoulder pad all of them from behind. They were contact shots, meaning the barrel of the gun was either touching his flesh or within an inch of his flesh or touching his clothing. They were fired by somebody who was who was standing immediately behind my father. And all of the shots were fired on an upward trajectory. So the gun was being held against my father's back. And the trigger was pulled four times. The audio of the night records 14 shots or 13 shots fired. So Sir Ann only had eight shots in his gun and there were many more shots than that fired and he never had a chance to reload. The man who killed my father is almost certainly Eugene Thane who was a security guard and he worked at the Lockheed Land. He had a classified position. He Lisa Pease, in her book, um, establishes that he was a, that he identified himself as an agent of the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency. And he um, uh, he died at the very beginning of the pandemic in the Philippines. And he, the gun that he had that night was a twenty-two which he lied about repeatedly. He was, when my father died, or when my father was shot, he fell onto Caesar and Caesar fell back. So the two men were lying on the ground and then Caesar pushed my father off and got up and he was seen by a dozen people with a gun in his hand and he never denied that he had his gun pulled. He said he had pulled the gun to to fire at Mm Surahead, but that gun was not found. And it was not turned over to the police. It has since been found. And Caesar lied repeatedly about what he had done with the gun. So there's a lot more evidence. It's too much to go into here. But if you, you know, people who are curious about it. There there are, you know, many, many books about that are written about what happened. And uh, the orthodoxy in this case doesn't make any sense, as it does in so many cases.
1: That's fascinating. Um, so that, I mean, that leads me to ask you what you think about your uncle's assassination. Cause that's one of the most speculated about moment in us history, right? I mean, from Oliver Stone, right. To the Warren commission, um, they concluded it was Arlen inspector, Senator Arlen inspector, uh, now God rest his soul. Uh, he, uh, He used to, I knew him kind of on Capitol Hill, and he used to say, it's not the single bullet theory, it's the single bullet conclusion. That's what happened. Single bullet, it was uh, Lee Harvey Oswald and only Lee Harvey Oswald. Where do
2: you land on it? Well, that was the Warren Commission. The Warren Commission, of course, the, 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 the key commissioner was Alan Dulles. And Alan Dulles, of course, was the head of the CIA who my uncle had fired after the Bay of Pigs. Um and he we now know that he was deliberately, and this is not controversial, this is well established, he was deliberately steering the committee away from many facts that would have been that would have implicated the CIA, including the fact. And Lee Harvey Oswald was a CIA asset beginning in 1958 when he worked as a radar operator at the Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan, um, which was the CIA base that was where the he was a Marine, where the um, where the U-2 flights were based out of that were over the Soviet Union. He defected to the Soviet Union. It was a fake defection. It was a It was a dangle. Um, It was orchestrated by James Jesus Angleton and Langley, who was the head of counterintelligence in Langley, meaning um, the division of the CIA that looks for Russian spies. spies. And there was a a KGB mole in Langley for many years. To this day, it's not been identified. And they were trying to track a chase out that mole and Lee, they thought that when Lee Harvey Oswald defected, Angleton believed that the mole, that the KGB would wonder who he was and would ask the mole to check his file. And they had a trigger system on his file in Langley that would identify anybody who touched it, but they weren't able to do it. And, and Oswald came back without any punishment without even being debriefed by the state department. He simply, he had made a very, very high profile defection to Russia. He married a daughter of a KGB colonel and then just walked into the state department and said, I want to go home. They bought his ticket. They gave him $600. He was met at the airport in Dallas by a guy called George March, who was also working for the agency. An agency asset. And, and, you know, they're, and you talk about the Warren Commission findings, but the United States Congress assassination committees and the Senate did a new investigation five years after the Warren Commission, and they came to the opposite conclusion that it was indeed a conspiracy. They didn't know whether the conspirators who actually murdered my uncle were mafia. Or with the CIA, there was a split within the committee. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the Warren Commission is was working on very little knowledge that was heavily orchestrated, and the subsequent investigations. And now we have millions of documents that you know uh, that suggest a strong involvement by the agency.
1: Coming up. Mm-hmm. He said nothing was off limits, so I went there and asked him point blank about the rumors about his father, his uncle, and Marilyn Monroe. Pure Talk is once again investing in their customers without charging an extra penny because Pure Talk is now providing international roaming to over 50 countries. That's right. As you plan your summer travel, make sure your wireless provider has you covered at home and abroad. PureTalk already puts you on America's most dependable 5G network, but now they're giving you coverage in over 50 countries as well. Unlimited talk, text, and plenty of 5G data for just 20 bucks a month. That's less than the half of what Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile will charge you. If you bring your phone, PureTalk's eSIM technology will make switching so simple, or you can get great savings on the latest iPhones and Androids. Consider making the switch to Pure Talk. Just go to puretalk.com slash kelly to start saving today. And when you do, you will save an additional 50% off your first month. Again, visit puretalk.com slash kelly to start saving on wireless at home and abroad. Wow. I mean, how does that, sorry to go Oprah on you, but how does that make you feel that you got, you know, you believe the CIA was responsible for the assassination of two men who are so dear to you?
2: Um, when you ask me how does it make it feel, how does it make me feel? Um, it's hard for me to separate my feelings from the, you know, from the kind of um, from the larger issue about what the implications are for our country and for our democracy.
3: Yeah,
2: that these yeah. are murders that. You know, whether I'm right or wrong about them, we should be able to talk about them. We should be able to reason. We shouldn't be again shut down and censored. The people ought to be able to have a congenial conversation about these. And if the original verdicts do not make any sense, then let's have an investigation and in what happened because our country took a turn when my uncle was killed. You know, when I was a boy, when I was on my sixth birthday. Seventh birthday. Dwight Eisenhower, man, January 17, 1961, made what I would consider the most important speech in American history, where he warned our country against the rise of the military industrial um, complex and the subversion of democracy through its ascendancy of, of this corrupt uh, um, cartel of intelligence agencies, the military agencies, military contractors, and other people who are attached to the military-industrial complex.
0: In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. My uncle.
2: Took office two days later. It was a farewell speech for Eisenhower, and he said, "This is the most important issue: the enemy within. It's you know not the people from outside our country, but people within." And he talked also about the health agencies and the health cartel, but he very, very explicitly and presciently. And my uncle spent three years of his presidency battling the military industrial complex. And in the end, if the conclusions of those, you know, that subsequent committee of the assassinated health assassinations committee are are correct, and it was members of that cartel that killed him. And if that's true, um, we should be trying to resolve that still because at that point, so what happened when he died he had, two months before he had died, he had signed national security order ordering all of our troops out of Vietnam, ending the Vietnam War. The first 1,000 troops, there were 1,100 troops, 11,000 troops, and the first 1,000 would be out by December. The remainders would all be out within 12 months by the end of 1965. Mm. Or by the beginning of 1965. It, As soon as he died, Linton Johnson, by the way, my uncle's been fighting for three years, his own military intelligence apparatus who wanted to send a quarter million troops into Vietnam and make it our war. And he said, no, there's the Vietnamese war. They have to win it or lose it. We can help them. We can give them advisors. We can give them helicopters, but we are not going to fight the war for them. Sounds familiar. And Johnson came in and immediately sent. You now we had the Tonkin Gulf Resolution, he sent a quarter million troops in there, and yeah. it became the American War. And then after Johnson, my father ran specifically against the war, specifically against the military industrial complex. Mm-hmm. He won California, and that meant he was almost certainly going to win the the convention and he had already beat nixon once he beat nixon he was my, my his brother's campaign manager in 60 he beat humphrey who was his only other opponent real opponent eugene mccarthy was not a, a serious candidate he he would have beaten he'd already beaten humphrey in 1960 and he beat nixon in 1960 so he was on his way know, to the white he house he had a clear it's path to the white house When he was murdered and he was specifically running against the Vietnam War and against the military industrial complex. As soon as he was killed, Nixon comes in and sends a half a million troops over there and then fights until 1963. When my uncle left office, 75 American special forces advisors had been killed in Vietnam. By the time, Nixon left 56,000 American troops and millions of Vietnamese had died in that conflict. And the military industrial complex had to get more and more powerful. And, 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 you know, you look at the rest of American history and it's just a, it's a battle between this dwindling impulse for democracy and the growing power of this cartel. And I think, you know, the murders of my uncle and my father were key parts in that that turn that we made in the road, and that part of unraveling, that restoring the path to democracy and the control over these uh, these dangerous, dangerous um, forces, you know, mm. probably ought to begin with a real investigation of both of those murders. A real investigation for the first time in history.
1: Indeed, indeed. What what could it hurt? What would be the reason not to? Um, on the subject of everything's okay to talk about, so. Forgive me, because this is—I so, realize—impolitic. Um, can we spend one minute on Marilyn Monroe? Happy
3: birthday to you. Happy
2: birthday to you. There's not um, much I can tell you about Marilyn Monroe. I mean, I met her when I. Mean, I the
1: was rumors school. are that she had an affair with your dad. That she had an affair with your uncle and even possibly that your dad was somehow there the night she died out in
2: California. Yeah. Well, those are um, rumors that have been time and again, proven completely untrue. There's two days. My father's schedule every minute of his day is known. So people know where he was every moment of the day. And it happens that the day that they say that my father, you know, that these, that, people who are selling books, saying these things. The day that they say my father was with her, he was with us at a camping trip up in Oregon and in Northern California. And it would have been impossible for him to be here. That was the day that she died. Mm -hmm. Oh, and all the days that people, that these authors who are just bogus authors who are making money by, you know, saying these things. All all the days that they claim that my father could have been with Marilyn Monroe are days when we know exactly where he was. And he was on on opposite sides of the country from Marilyn Monroe.
1: What do you make of the affair rumors of, you know, between Uh, Bobby Kennedy and or Jack Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe?
2: Yeah, I again, all of the rumors about the affair you'd have to find a time where he could have had an affair. And there is no conceivable time when the two people are in the same city. So uh, there's always a way when a man wants to have an
1: affair, he can find a way. Come on. There's that. I'm talking about my
2: father. We know where he was on all all the, you know, the, the author's, Claim to know the days, and you'd have to know the day because my father's schedule was known. He was on the campaign trail. He what had about all of Jack
1: bitches. Kennedy's affairs? Like, we, you know, we know oh, he did that, even though the New York Times wasn't writing about it. Washington Post.
2: I, I, listen, I wasn't around then. So I can't answer that question. I can't answer the question about my uncle.
1: You were talking to him about salamanders on the plane, not his love life. That no, makes sense to me. I was
2: talking about his. <laughs> his, um, extracurricular.
1: Yeah. There was only so much he was going to share with you, uh, on board that air force. I get it. Listen, I, I don't know how to thank you for all this time. Here we are four hours later and you've just been so open and giving on every subject, personal and professional. I really, really enjoyed the exchange and I hope we can have more.
2: Thank you very much. Thanks for your courage, Megan. Thank you for your integrity. And I uh, hope they leave this up more than about 10 seconds.
1: Wow. What an interesting man, right? What a fascinating exchange. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing in it with us and, and both days. And remember, if you missed part one of my interview with RFK Jr., you can find that wherever you get your videos or podcasts for free. I always love to hear what you think of the shows that we do, and I would especially love to hear what you thought of this one. Um, What were your opinions? Did he persuade you on anything? Were you glad to hear from him? Do you think he's so controversial he needs to be universally banned? As he has been would love to know your thoughts. Leave me a note right now. We take him in the Apple reviews Basically the long and the short of it is Apple gives us no love I mean if you go into Apple podcast you will see Michelle Obama promoted and Hillary Clinton's podcast promoted You will not see the Megan Kelly show Promoted, but one way of getting our show to sort of get traction on Apple is the more comments we get the higher up we go so, um it serves two purposes. It helps us fight the man over at Apple. And it also helps me understand your thoughts on the program and your guest suggestions and what you liked and what you didn't like. I have read every single comment. There are over 22,500 of them now. And um, it's a great way for us to connect. Okay. And while you're there, do me the favor of subscribing and downloading. Give me a five-star review. because Some of the losers are giving like zero or one. Those are the haters who watch MSNBC. So give me five stars, please. Help me out. And leave us a comment on social media if that's easier for you. Or you can just email me at questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. Questions at devilmaycaremedia.com. Lots of ways of giving us feedback. Nothing and no one is off limits here on The Megyn Kelly Show. We will keep bringing you the truth. Thank you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to the Megan Kelly show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear.
2: This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.
0: Here you are. BPM's high, sweat dripping, body moving, tongue (laughs)